Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We are so excited to have here today with us Gabe Sherman, who is a Vanity Fair correspondent, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Loudest Voice in the Room, How the Brilliant, Bombastic Roger Ailes Built Fox News and Divided a Country. So this book came out in 2014, yet you can learn a whole lot about why we are in the current era of political drama from the reporting you did and also your reporting process starting, you know, I think you really started working on the book in around 2011. And so you put so many years into telling a story that was out there in the open and people had spoken about Roger Ailes and what was going on with women at Fox News, but no one really had blown the lid off of it. And so Gabe did that. Gabe blew the lid Mm -hmm. off the story. So we're so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Joining me today is our executive producer and my sometime co-host, Adam Levine. Adam also served in the White House for President George W. Bush. He was also a senior producer at NBC News and began his career with the late, great Daniel Patrick Monahan. And in the interest of full disclosure, um, I was one of the sources, one of the many, many, many sources I got to know, Gabe, during the writing of this book. And in interest of full disclosure, my husband works at Vanity Fair with Gabe. Now that we have that all that out of the way, at least <laughs> yes. go ahead. Yes. So this book... It's thick. Mm -hmm. You can read it on Kindle or listen, and it goes very quickly because of the familiarity with the story and the players, but you really take the character of Roger Ailes and explain who he is. And I have always been fascinated with Roger Ailes. He's just such a genius at political messaging and politics and media. And so you kind of take us to the beginning of how that career started for Roger Ailes. You know, it's interesting because when I sold the book, my original uh, proposal to Random House was more of a straight history of Fox News starting when the network launched in 1996, taking it up through, well, was it 2010 or so? So wherever I finished the reporting. And very early on in the reporting, I was doing all these interviews and everyone was talking about the same idea, which is to understand Fox, you have to understand Roger, that, you know, it's this multi-billion dollar cable network, but it's really the creation of one man. It's kind of a mom and pop shop. And so uh, very quickly, I decided that the best way to do this book would be to do it more as a biography of Ailes and tell the story of his life, which traces the arc of the rise of television as a political medium. And through Ailes's life, you could see how American politics had changed. And then when you're learning about Fox News, you're learning that it's really this cult of personality of this one man. So that was really why I decided to go so deep on Ailes. And at the time, he was well known in political circles and to professionals like yourself. But in the wider culture, he was not like a Karl Rove. He wasn't a household name. And I think clearly Ailes's legacy is going to far outlive him. And he's going to be someone I imagine will be much more famous you know, posthumously than he did when he was alive. And for someone who could dish it out, Roger Ailes couldn't really take it. He did not like your investigative focus on his life and on his work. You know, I was kind of naive, I guess, because uh, when I took on the book, I mean, I knew Ailes was known as being, you know, this larger than life media personality, but not like someone who would actually make you feel like your life was in danger. Um, And I guess if I had known that, maybe I wouldn't have done the book. (laughs) But um, yeah, you know, once I started doing a more, a deep dive on his life story, he really reacted 
like I was basically, you know, public enemy number one. And he, you know, dispatched private investigators to, you know, dig into my private life. He created a whole dossier about, you know, my bank records and my voting history. And um, the most disturbing part was he created these whole series of websites that were smearing me in kind of sort of overt anti-Semitic ways. And then I was going to picked up in the right wing blogs. And then my wife and I got a death threat at home. So it was kind of taking on this you know, fervor in the right wing uh, fever swamps of the internet. And, um, and so that was alarming because, you know, I, you know, we didn't have a doorman at our apartment. I felt like I was just sort of this one man operation going up against the entire right wing movement in, in America. And now in the age of Trump, where reporters are targeted on Twitter, and it's, it's much more common now. But in 2011 or so, it felt much more like this was a, you know, a, a new a new form of harassment online. And you interviewed over 600 people for this book. So the scope probably was petrifying because yeah, he, when you're trying to hide something, you don't want a reporter who's actually doing real reporting and going and speaking to everyone. Absolutely. And how did that how did that come through? Because obviously you got that word in that sense while you were researching the book before you'd, you'd even published it. So how would that come back to you? Would that come back to you directly? Would that come back to you through people not wanting to talk to you? Would that come, you know, just, yeah. just go through a little bit of how you learn because, you know, you do, he's called brilliant in the title. I mean, yeah. if it was Donald Trump, he would just read the title and think it was a great yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I remember really early on, actually, this was, um, I, I, I figured this was going to be uh, a completely new kind of reporting experience where I called a former NBC executive who uh, had been around when Ailes was forced out of NBC in 1995. And, you know, I had a pleasant 10-minute phone conversation. It wasn't actually that revealing of an interview. And two minutes after I hang up the phone, I get a phone call from uh, Ailes' PR guy, Brian Lewis, basically saying, you know, what are you doing calling around saying Ailes was fired? And, you know, basically what I learned is immediately after hearing from me, sources were going back to Roger and kind of re relaying what questions I was asking. So it turned into this elaborate game of telephone where every time I would interview someone, they would report back to Ailes and probably, you know, depending on what they wanted, could, you know, spin what I was asking. And then Ailes was, you know, claiming that I was asking all sorts of crazy questions. And so um, it sort of felt like we were shadowing each other over these three years, even though I only met him three, I think three times during that period, we had this really intense kind of codependent relationship. And it was someone that I thought about every single day, even though, you know, he wasn't a fr obviously not a friend, you know, it was like we had this, we were so incredibly close and yet so far apart. And the story you tell about when you finally did meet him is creepy yeah. and weird. Yeah, tell that. I think well, that would be so, great. Yeah, so the first – I did – I have a couple of encounters. Um, but the first one was at the Four Seasons at a uh, at a media party. Um, and he was there with his wife, uh, Elizabeth Ailes. And um, I went up to him and, uh, and them. They were entering the party and I was kind of on the, the red carpet. And I said, Mr. Ailes, it's Gabe Sherman at New York – I was at New York Magazine at the time and I'm working on this book. And he goes, yeah, I know who you are and I, you know you can write whatever you want about me but stop harassing my wife. And I was just like completely thrown, like harassed, wife, what? And, you know, I had gone up to his, I guess, his little newspaper that he owned upstate and I was doing some reporting there. And, and in Ailes' mind, that construed to harassing his wife because she was the publisher. And I, you know, said, this is not true. And uh, and then his wife said, well, you're just trying to make a buck off my husband as if, you know, Roger Ailes, who was made – 
paid $25 million a year, didn't make the money on me. The irony is they probably spent more money harassing you yeah. with private investigators yeah. and creating dossiers yeah. about your very exciting bank records as a young reporter <laughs> yeah, living in, in New York <laughs> than actually. I know. The other, the, other, the other conspiracy I loved is that uh, Ailes would tell people that I was being paid by George Soros to write the book. And I... I joke that we, you know, I live in a walk-up apartment in Queens. Like, if I was getting paid by Soros, I didn't get a very good deal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So let's step back a bit to the political work of Roger Ailes. And you talk about how he was a young producer on Mike Douglas. He switched over to work for Nixon. And one of the stories about Roger Ailes that I find most fascinating is when he would stage the mock focus groups. And they would plot the different, you know, voters that they wanted to have in the room. And Roger was adamant that they didn't just need to be softballs, that there had to be some drama, there had to be some tension. So it seemed real, even though it was a paid advertisement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's a great question, Elise. You know, that's, I think, the core of the genius that he did with Nixon. And we see it at Fox News. And I'll sort of connect the two, but I'll first start with what he did for Nixon is so um, he scheduled these town hall meetings across America that were televised. They would the Nixon campaign would buy airtime, but they appeared to be real town halls where the questioners would ask real questions of Nixon, and he would Ailes would carefully select you know the right housewife, the you know African American guest, you know the businessman. He would have the demographic group of the questioners reflect the voters that they wanted to reach on the campaign. And and so if you just tuned in at home, watch this, you think this is a news program. I'm watching uh, a town hall. Fast forward to Fox News. You know, I think part of the reason why Ailes's Fox News is so much more successful than Trump's Fox News is because Ailes was smart enough to know he obviously was a right winger, conservative, but you couldn't just have straight party line red meat. You had to have the appearance of the genius slogan, fair and balanced. So, you know, Ailes would invite liberals on Fox News. You know, he would like to have actual debates. The conservatives usually had to win, but he wanted the appearance of two sides clashing. Now with Trump, you know, it's just tr- most of the hours of the day is Trump TV. It's just a carnival. And if Ailes was alive, he would be like, this is terrible television. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you, because the contrast is pretty dramatic in the Roger Ailes era of Fox News, where there was that tension. And then now where you have some shows and hosts who are really just defying logic to be able to do somersaults to defend Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. I think um, if he was around today, he would, you know, he would say that it's, you know, completely not what he wanted to do. And I think, you know, there were times when if you look at Glenn Beck, and he was getting kind of bigger than Fox and leading the crazy rally on the mall in Washington, you know, that was a time where Ailes wanted to dial back because that was taking over the brand. And there always needed to be enough plausible deniability that Fox was a genuine news network, even when it was programmed every single day to reflect Ailes's worldview. And that is going all the way back to the work he did in 68 for Nixon. And yeah, I think that that's a good place to start. You, you talk about him meeting Richard Nixon on that Michael Douglas show that, that that Elise mentioned, and I think Nixon expressed a skepticism about television in that first meeting. And, and what did Ailes say to him? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the legendary moments. Ailes met him uh, backstage at the show, and he said, "You know, sir, Mr. Vice President, if you you know, think that way, you're going to lose again." And you know, Nixon was so shaken by his 1960 loss to JFK and that famous televised debate where Nixon appeared like a ghost sweaty ghost on camera that he was like, this guy must know television. He said to Dwight Chapin or one of his other aides at the time, you know, hire this guy. And shortly thereafter, Ailes went up to New York 
and was hired um, by Len Garman and, and Haldeman and all the Nixon guys. On the campaign. To, yeah, on the campaign to be the media advisor and to travel with the candidate and make sure that these televised town halls were expertly produced. The questions were the, the right ones. And that was really Ailes's entree into politics. And it was virgin terrain. I mean, no one had, I mean, there were media advisors and, and ad guys, but no one who was producing politics with the level of sophistication that Ailes was because he was applying TV values to politics and programming it as a TV show. And to your point about him being stung by that 60 loss, Joe Kennedy was famous for having said, uh, leading up to 1960, we're going to sell Jack like soap flakes. Roger Ailes took that to a whole new and professionalized that level. And I thought it was interesting in your description that Roger, two things. One, he got very close to the guy who was writing a campaign book, which Elisa yep. and I know is always a very dangerous, dangerous. thing as, as, as an operative. And then when they won, Roger was not invited into the White House, even though it was clear from the writings and everything else yeah. that you wanted to talk a little bit about why that is and who was stopping him from being in there. Yeah. So um, this is a, one of the other aspects of Ailes's life that I find so fascinating is while he was a committed conservative, he had a lot of liberal friends, a lot of journalist friends. You know, we could, you know, Lee Atwater was sort of like that, very savvy about knowing how to play the media. And during the 68 campaign, he befriended Joe McGinnis, who was a young uh, newspaper columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And Ailes was also in Philadelphia because that's where the Mike Douglas show was produced. So they became pals and they basically – Ailes gave him amazing access. And I, I don't think McGinnis oversold Ailes' importance to the campaign. But this book, The Selling of the President, made Ailes the central character. He was the most vivid, the most uh, colorfully described character of all the Nixon aides. And it, it basically made him seem like he single-handedly helped Nixon get elected. And Haldeman and Ehrlichman and all the other old-time Nixon hands resented that this 28-year-old punk producer was considered the Svengali behind the campaign. And so after the inauguration, Ailes wanted to go inside. And I, when I was in the archives out in California at the Nixon Library researching, you see these letters where Ailes is apologizing about, you know, the comments he made about Nixon and he's writing Haldeman, you know, basically apologizing and Haldeman writes these icy memos back, like understood, just make sure it never happens again. Um, but basically the door was shut that once they got in, he wasn't getting a job. One of the things about Ailes working on the outside for Nixon, which you point out, I think very, very correctly, was a fortunate thing for him because he didn't get wrapped up in Watergate. Yeah. But he also got to fire off memos that he had lots of time to work on yeah. and propose projects mostly to get business, <laughs> get business himself. <laughs> but at the same time, you can see the roots of Fox and what he wanted to do. Talk a little bit about that because I think it's very interesting for A, Fox and B, what we're witnessing now going into another presidential crisis. Yeah. That this was born out of. Yeah. So, you know, I think Fox News, yes, it launched in 96, but it really was, I think, forged in the crucible of Watergate. And, you know, and to some degree, 68, you know, Nixon ran against the mainstream. It wasn't known then as the mainstream media, but the big three broadcast networks and CBS News. And so you go to Watergate and there was this real feeling amongst the right that the Washington Post, the New York Times and the media had basically railroaded Nixon out of office and that they needed their own voice in the national conversation to kind of be a check against this unlimited power that the that the big broadcast networks and the papers had. And so Ailes, among others in Nixon's orbit, hatched this plan to create 
its own broadcasting service, a government-funded, basically propaganda, a government-funded news service that they would mail tapes to, now this seems like ancient history, but they would mail tapes to local independent TV uh, broadcast stations that didn't have the budgets for national news. And so they would get these news clips and be able to air pro-Nixon, pro-Republican uh, news. And uh, it didn't go anywhere. But you can see in 74, 75, they are already thinking about how to build their own media network. Um, I also write in the book, and this is one of my favorite parts of the book, it's a little lesser known part. But Ailes, uh, for a little over a year, was the news director of this fledgling right wing news network <laughs> known as TVN. And it was bankrolled by the Coors family, who were like the Cokes of their day, the right wing brewing family from Golden, Colorado. And they poured millions of dollars into this fledgling news network that was also trying to beam national news to the unaffiliated uh, local broadcast stations around America. And I got this access to this private archive that the founder of TVN had kept. His name was Robert Pauly. He was a former ABC News uh, executive, uh, John Birch Society, you know, real right winger. So he left ABC to create this network. And you can see in these documents all about how you know, they need to get their their view into the world and they got to use sex appeal and, um, you know, they can create narratives and storylines. All these memos detail essentially what Fox News would become. And Ailes worked there for a little over a year. So you're seeing in his life, you have Nixon, you have daytime TV with the Mike Douglas show, you have TVN. He's picking up all these little, these ideas along the way so that in 96, when he starts Fox, it's kind of this fully formed idea in his mind. I find Ailes' relationship with another president more fascinating, though. <laughs> Roger Ailes was close friends with the late, great H.W. Bush. And looking at their unlikely friendship and the genuine affection that there seems to be mm -hmm. among the two men, they seem just so incredibly different. You yeah. have George H.W. Bush, who is just all about manners and his, uh, you know, gentle outlook and grace. And then you've got Roger Ailes, yeah. who is just, you know, blowing up, blowing off the roof. Yeah, there um, couldn't, you know, sort of be more different. You have, you know, George H.W. Bush from Greenwich, Connecticut, and Patrician, you know, dynasty. And then you have jo uh, Roger Ailes from Warren, Ohio, you know, real son of a scrappy uh, factory foreman. But these two kind of odd couple guys had this tremendous lifelong bond. I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, I'm not kind of being uh, corny here, but Ailes did have a genuine reverence for the United States and especially the U.S. military. And I think he saw in 41's uh, war service being a uh, World War II uh, hero, um, something that was sacred. And when he went to work for him in 86 in the run-up to the 88 campaign, you know, he respected H.W. And I think he was one of the few people who would s sort of talk back to H.W. in a way that was respectful but honest. And there was, you know, when you're, when you're a president, you know, you've worked for uh, presidents, even in the White House, like there's very few people who will tell the commander in chief what the actual, what the you know the real truth. And and H W respected that. The other thing that Ailes did, I think that H W really respected, and Lee Atwater was similar, is he was willing to do things that the Bushes and the Bush family were not. They kind of outsourced a lot of the real knife fighting of politics to people like Ailes. And so there's this famous moment in the New Hampshire primary in 88 when it looked like Bob Dole was going to be the nominee. And Ailes and Atwater came up with this ad 
that was all about how Dole was straddling the issue on taxes. And it was this kind of hilarious, really kind of roughly cut 30-second spot about Dole going straddling back and forth. And just the way it was filmed was kind of made Dole look kind of ridiculous. And and so they ran it, and Bush didn't want to run this. It was too mean. He was friends with Dole. And there was this kind of war council meeting. And I think 43 was there. Um, was. George W. was there. And they finally prodded H.W. to run this ad. And uh, there's this sort of now infamous interview where Tom Brokaw was interviewing Dole on primary night in New Hampshire. And he said something to the effect of, you know, uh, Senator Dole, um, would, you know, would you like to say anything to the, to the Bush campaign? And he snapped like, you know, just tell him to stop lying about my taxes. And it was like it was the revealing moment because everyone in politics knew that Dole's weakness, his Achilles heel, was his anger. And for that moment, America got to see his anger and just, you know, that was sort of it for him. And then Bush came back and the nomination was over. In, in that same campaign, and I'm far from anybody who would ever defend Roger Ailes, but as I read your book and I, I read commentary about it, Roger Ailes and Lee both get blamed, especially in the passing of President Bush 41. They all get blamed for the Willie Horton ad and we all know that the Willie Horton ad was first run by the Gore campaign yeah. against Michael Dukakis. Yeah. And uh, they were just kind of smart enough to say, hey, yeah. that worked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Horton ad was something that's the stain that Ailes was never quite able to shake. And, you know, he for years after said, you know, it was originally produced by this outside pack. But there was an interview that he gave. The problem, I think, the reason why Ailes was never able to to shed uh, the Horton baggage was because he told Time magazine at the time when the Horton uh, ads were running something to the effect of the only the only question is whether we show Willie Horton with a knife or a gun. And he claimed later that that quote was off the record. But there was a quote during the campaign where Ailes was kind of gloating about Horton. And so even though he said, I didn't produce the ad, you know, the publicly he was associated with it. And that unfortunately is, you know, also part of Ailes's legacy is yes, he is a, a brilliant image maker. But he also is probably the most um, devious when it comes to using wedge issues like race and class and religion to divide the electorate. Um, and that's what Fox News has, you know, obviously built its whole and empire that, on. And that relationship was forged years before Fox News was founded, which I think is a very important thing because mm -hmm. knowing President Bush 41, like we all do, I question whether if Ailes had been running Fox and Fox was doing what it was doing, if that friendship would have developed the same way. I read that as a uh, fondness for a political consultant who worked hard, who was hard charging, and the Bush loyalty. Yeah. Uh, that, that wasn't going to change much. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, they would have these long talks. Uh, you know, Ailes in his office at Fox would talk to 41 all the time and, you know, 41 liked how, you know, Roger would tell him dirty jokes and he was like, you know, he was a guy's guy. And so that was a chance for 41 to kind of be, you know, not around the country club. But the dark side was really, mm -hmm. really, really dark. Yeah. Roger Ailes was a sexual sadist. Mm -hmm. He, the harassment, the pervasive harassment of women yeah. who he had power over and he really seemed to go out of his way to prey on women who were vulnerable and who didn't have strong family ties. And without asking you to psychoanalyze him too much, what do you think that this demon mm -hmm. was rooted in? Control <laughs> yeah. or just, you know, I mean, sadism? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I've thought a lot about it. You know, he 
is a very was a very dark person, had a very bleak view of the world and human nature. And I think that made him a great political strategist, but a really damaged human being. And, um, you know, his family life, I went deep on that because um, I got access to his parents' divorce records from the 1950s in Ohio, and it paints a harrowing domestic picture. His mom, um, in you know, under oath in these court papers, alleged that his father, you know, you know, routinely beat her and the children and threatened to kill her when she wanted to get a divorce, um, forced her to have sex. I interviewed Ailes's bro- older brother, Robert, and he also said in these interviews that the father was violent, would whip them with a belt, um, just sort of a real sadistic yeah. uh, home life. And, and then the other sort of seminal event in Ailes's childhood, well, there's two, I would say. Um, the first is that he's a hemophiliac. Um, at a time in the 1940s and 50s when being a hemophiliac meant you probably weren't going to live out of your teenage years. And he did. But I think that sense that even the smallest cut, you know, could lead to you bleeding to death gave him such a desire for control. You know, he thought life was so fleeting. So he was always trying to control his environment. You know, at Fox, you know, there was cameras everywhere. The employees thought that offices were bugged. I mean, there was a paranoid environment largely because Ailes wanted to try to control everything. And then the other uh, sort of defining event of his early life that I think shaped his, his view of women was that when he was um, 17 years old, maybe 18, or after his uh, sophomore year of college, he came home over uh, Christmas break to find that his parents had divorced. His mom had moved to California, and as he described it in interviews, like all of his stuff was basically just on the front porch. Like his family just, you know, totally collapsed in that sense of abandonment. Um, and so he basically thought human relationships were completely transactional from there on out. And I think with women especially, um, there was just this desire to excise whatever of all of those, you know, you know, painful experiences. And it, it, it ruined, you know, so many lives. And um, and so I think, you know, that that's something where he was able to hide it for many years, but, you know, one quote that sticks out in my book is he had told Joe McGinnis in the 70s that he was um, – they were talking on the phone. And as McGinnis recalled this conversation, he said that Roger said, you know, I'm walking around all the time with all this anger and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And so I always – it really sort of chilled me and I sort of thought of Ailes as this ticking time bomb of, you know, he was able to contain all of the, his rages and his, you know, sadistic sexual uh, desires. But then in the end, it caught up and, it, you know, he – went down in a complete disgrace. What sense do you have of his relationship with his wife at the end of his life? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. Um, she became late, you know, throughout his life, but especially those final two weeks when he was being forced out of Fox, his fiercest defender. Um, you know, she would tell people that all the women were making up stories, that they were lying, that, um, you know, they're just trying to take Roger down that the Clintons were behind it. I mean, just, again, sort of totally imbibing Ailes's paranoid worldview. And uh, she moved with him to Palm Beach, uh, Florida, to basically live in exile together um, until he died, you know, months after he left Fox. I mean, I did hear that there was, you know, strains in the marriage. Um, and in the um, Gretchen Carlson's lawsuit, which was based on tapes that she had made of of Ailes in his office, Ailes had told Gretchen that, you know, marriage is boring, it's hard. And, you know, clearly, this was um, not a traditional marriage. He was 20 plus years older than Beth Ailes. And, you know, she lived a lot of the time up in Garrison, New York, 
and Ailes had his apartment on Fifth Avenue. So there was a lot of time where he had, you know, this freedom away from her to, you know, be with the Fox women. This all came together in a very strange political moment. You have Donald Trump and his animosity towards women. You have Roger Ailes with his animosity for women. And, you know, Roger Ailes is outed. I remember the summer of at the convention during the convention. I mean, it could not have been any more dramatic, all of the different chips that were falling. But how much do you think Roger Ailes did create the conditions that allowed Donald Trump to rise to the presidency? Yeah. You know, I write about that in the paperback in the uh, updated edition of my book. You know, I, I really didn't see it until Trump declared his candidacy. And early on, people were dismissing Trump as a joke, as a, you know, this is a stunt campaign. And I remember I wrote a piece for New York Magazine that actually took him seriously as a candidate. And that was actually why I got pretty good access to Trump during the campaign, because he respected how I was one of the few sort of national journalists to take him seriously. And the reason I did take him seriously was because I recognized that what he was saying, especially in that first speech when he called Mexicans rapists, the, you know, the press corps was like, this is crazy. His campaign's over. And I was thinking, this is what Republican primary voters have been hearing for the past 15 plus years. And so this language that Trump was speaking, while it seemed extreme and, and uh, completely out of the mainstream, was totally mainstream for the, ba- the base of the GOP. And so I kind of had recognized that the political uh, gravity had shifted away from traditional politics. Um, and I think my all my reporting on Fox had helped me to see that. This book was written and published two full years before Donald Trump was elected and before Roger Ailes uh, left Fox, was forced out of Fox. In the intervening time, first of all, there are a few characters. When I went through it, it was interesting because there were characters I didn't pay all that much attention to that now have become much larger. Let's talk about one of them to start off with, Bill Shine. Mm -hmm. He was an executive that I'd known when I was at NBC. He was always trying to recruit every NBC person away from from the network. So you'd get a weekly or a monthly call from Bill Shine to see if you were happy, if you and you, and you would uh, respectfully decline. Um, and let's just point out that Bill Shine is also still on Fox's payroll, yeah. getting his multi million dollars. Three and a half million dollars a year. It's a three and a half. So he's still getting three and a half million dollars. He is now uh, another job that I know fairly well, White House Communications Director. And uh, again, I, I think that's that's enough for me to say, uh, Gabe Sherman, talk about that. That would really <laughs> that's the kind of top off that would really help a White House salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so you know, Shine was the classic kind of Fox News executive. He was there at the beginning. Ailes plucked him out of local news. He was working in local Long Island kind of local news, basically the New York one of Long Island. And Ailes gave him a job as a junior producer for Sean Hannity. And from there, he rose up through the ranks as Ailes's consigliere, but totally as the classic yes man. I mean, he was the guy who would, you know, take Ailes's right wing talking points and make sure that they got all out to the talent. You know, he was the he was both the enforcer, but also the whisperer of all of the. He didn't like email. He only talked on the phone. All that stuff. All paranoia. That's kind of the boiler room stuff that Roger did. You'd see, you you get (laughs) if you were a producer at Fox and you got a email from Bill, it just would say, "Call me" or "Come see me," and you knew that some shit was going to go down. But when Ailes was was fired, it emerged that Shine was also his right hand man when it came to enabling sexual harassment, and I think. The most chilling example of that was the case of Lori Loon, who you know we were just talking about. She was um, 
uh, kind of the most tragic of Ailes's many victims because it's the most extreme example of what we know so far of the Ailes's abuse. But she was uh, the longtime head of bookings for Fox News, worked mostly out of the D.C. Bureau and then was transferred to New York. And Ailes had coerced her into a 20-year sexual and psychologically abusive relationship. He blackmailed her during their first encounter at a hotel with a tape recording. He videotaped her during a sex act and then basically told her, I'm going to keep this tape and you need to you know, be available to me at whenever I want. But fast forward, after their relationship had kind of run their course and she was having uh, an emotional breakdown, Ailes turned to Bill Shine to make sure that she stayed medicated, that she checked into the Warwick Hotel uh, over here on 6th Avenue and stayed basically on lockdown. Bill Shine found uh, a psychiatrist for her to make sure she you know, didn't go public to the press. And you know, that's a sort of a form of transgression. He wasn't you – know, he wasn't acting as an executive. He was basically acting um, you know, as Ailes' um, cleanup guy. And um, and so when he got the White House job, you know, people were, you know, shocked that this guy with this, you know, sordid history of of covering up harassment is now, you know, the communications director, you know, at the White House, which is one of the most prestigious jobs in America. Really? Well, they joke that after you get fired from Fox News, that the place you end up is Donald Trump's White House. (laughs) Another thing that struck me also was in terms of how Ailes, the rhetoric, even back, we'll go back again to the that time in the 70s when Roger Ailes was doing political consulting. And there's a great story in the book that you tell about uh, Ailes working for Robert Taft Jr., Mm -hmm. who was running in 1970 for governor Mm -hmm. of the state of Ohio. And he was the son of the famous Mm -hmm. senator who ran for president and the grandson of the Supreme Court uh, Chief Mm -hmm. Justice and President of the United States, William Howard Taft. He was a soft-spoken patrician type. And he was, I I think, taking on in a primary. He was taking on the Republican governor. And... Ailes was his, for lack of a better way of putting it, debate coach. Mm-hmm. The way I read it in your book, you'd said that uh, Ailes had walked over to uh, Taft right before, I believe it was a congressman at the time, had walked over to him and handed him a, a note on stage seconds before it was supposed to take place and it just said, kill. Kill, yeah. And, you know, that's, um, that's, a, that's a great moment because it, you know, both inspired his candidate but gets in the head of the opponent of what, you know, what's the – What's um, what's the consultant handing? Um, and Taft came out swinging. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know that was that was Ailes's strength is, and he did that with forty one too. Is you know forty one um, was known as you know not a a fierce debater, and there was the famous Dan Rather exchange on CBS News when you know he was going to ask forty one a whole bunch of uh, questions about Iran Contra in during the Republican primary in eighty eight, and Ailes basically hijacked the interview. He had these cue cards off camera and was telling uh, Bush to go after Rather and ask him about the time that he walked off set because CBS decided to program the U.S. Open tennis finals rather than CBS Evening News. And this happened. And if you watch the exchanges on YouTube, it was kind of the first cable news debate where you had the guest yelling back at the at the um, newsman. And uh, because that just wasn't done back then. I mean, when you were the evening news anchor, you were kind of God and you answer and the guest answers the questions. And now Bush was yelling back, rather was totally rattled. And a lot of Republicans, I know, joke that that's where his Dan's career just ended right there because he kind of went crazy. And then, you know, fast forward to 2004 with the with the Did whole, they have Bush derangement syndrome. Yeah, like that? yeah, exactly. You know, that planted the seeds that then with the National Guard uh, documents, you know, brought him down. 
But talk a little bit about the role that Ailes, even pre-Fox, took in hardening the discourse Mm -hmm. because I think it's one of the important things at least led very nicely into Donald Trump. And I think one of the the things there is this was a a strategic decision, not just a tactic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean Ailes had a history of pushing the boundaries of sort of political speech. You know, there's a very famous race in 1990. He was um, representing Lynn Martin, who was running um, for Congress uh, against Paul Simon in Illinois. And um, after one of the debates, Ailes got on stage and held his own press conference and called Paul Simon a a weenie. And that was like, just again, (laughs) not done in national politics. We were calling, you know, Trump calls guys losers all the time, but no one did that then. And Ailes gets up and calls Simon a weenie. And that actually boomeranged back on Ailes and um, ended up hurting her campaign and also his consulting career. But that was a moment where, again, he pushed the boundary of what was acceptable political speech. Um, And Ailes is famous for um, this expression that if you have two guys on a debate stage, one has the cure for cancer, the other falls on his face and breaks his nose, who are you going to remember the next day? And so basically Ailes' theory of politics is that it's basically what sells the most is conflict and drama. And so um, he was constantly moving in that direction and pushing the culture that way. And so I think when a guy like Donald Trump comes around, America was ready for that kind of rhetoric. We had been conditioned by Roger Ailes. One of the things that personally to me was interesting in reading your book is that there's this transformation of Fox from the Bush 43 White House then during the Obama White House. And in in our White House – we would fight with Fox sometimes. I famously got in a fight with Sean Hannity and as Gabe talks about in his book, had to was dispatched by the vice president's office to go up and make Mr. Ailes feel a little bit better. That didn't happen after 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a turn. To describe the turn. Yeah. When Barack Obama won um, the 08 election, you know, in Roger Ailes' mind, this was you know, a crisis for America. And Ailes saw both himself and Fox taking on a new role of not just being, you know, a conservative news network, but really, you know, being a check on what he saw as Obama's dangerous plans for America. And Ailes ascribed to the worst of the right-wing conspiracies about Obama, the birtherism, all the terrible stuff. And so Fox became, you know, really kind of the megaphone of the sort of far right-wing opposition to to Obama, and it lost its kind of, and this was part of the evolution. You know, during the, the the Bush years, you had serious news people, especially in the D.C. bureau at Fox, and during the Obama years, um, it was the the Fox and Friends and Hannity and Glenn Beck and those t- types of people that took over, and that was largely because Ailes felt that he was the only thing standing between Obama and sort of some socialist. Uh, dystopia that that Obama wanted to create. And there's this moment in the book where I report about this meeting that David Axelrod and Ailes had to kind of hash it out and try to make peace. And Ailes says to Axelrod, well, you know, Obama wants to create a national police force that's loyal to him. And, uh, and Axelrod's like, what are you talking about? And Ailes plays a clip. And it's something to the degree Obama's talking about, you know, we need to invest in TSA, something of a benign, completely a benign policy speech. And Ailes is like, see, that's what he's going to do. And so in his mind, Ailes hears, you know, some speech about law enforcement and thinks this is, you know, based uh, Obama's plan to um, create a totalitarian state. And so that was a huge shift from the Bush years where, you know, rather than kind of 
being a conservative voice that would round out the rest of the media, Ailes saw himself as now leading, being basically the kingmaker of the Republican Party and stopping Barack Obama. Would Roger Ailes be pleased with what Fox looks like two and a half years after his departure, or would he, as always, wanting to be in control, the micromanager, uh, have some serious issues? He would uh, be happy with the ratings for sure. I mean, that's at the end of the day, he would fall back on the number one thing that matters ratings. So the ratings have never generally been better, but he would not be happy with the carnival sort of circus-like ridiculousness you see every day on the way Fox is just mocked, even, you know, in Republican circles in in many ways. Um, And I think he wouldn't be happy that Trump feels that Fox works for him. I mean, I think he, Ailes would like the fact that, you know, Fox has so much influence with the White House, but Ailes would want to be in control. And during the 2016 campaign, you know, one of the interesting narratives was the tension between Trump and Fox. And while Fox helped create Trump, Trump became bigger than Fox in a certain way. And when he boycotted the debate, Ailes, you know, he didn't know what to do. A Republican had never boycotted a Fox News debate. And so I think Ailes would be frustrated that, you know, Trump was this sort of animal he couldn't control. I love the book. I think it's important in understanding how we ended up in this current predicament and the media ecosystem at large. But I also recommend people read that you read the book now because coming next summer, the book is going to be a series and one of my best friends from college is actually playing Gabe. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, you know, uh, we're doing an eight-part limited series uh, for Showtime, um, a dramatic series, and starring Russell Crowe is playing uh, Roger Ailes. And the physical transformation is the, just, There are pictures online. You yeah. have to see them. It's fantastic. It'll make you want to watch it even more. Yeah. And the great Fran Kranz is playing and, Gabe. <laughs> and, um, and so it's a really... Um, it's just amazing to, you know, after having reported on this world for years, to see, you know, these amazing artists and actors, you know, bring these characters to life. So I hope everyone next year uh, gets a chance to, to see it on Showtime. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Great to be Gabe. with you. Thank you. Thanks, Gabe. And we want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, chances are it's on Audible. And right now you can take advantage of the Words Matter Audible Holiday Special and get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Give yourself or someone you love the gift of listening, the gift of a good book. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500, 500 Audible, because words matter. Audible, because words matter. And finally, we want to thank our friends and partners at The Hangar Studios. Since we launched back in August, Words Matter has been recorded and produced by Jennifer Ho, Chad Dugatz, and the entire Hangar Studios team. They are total pros. The Hangar Studios will help you find your voice, find your audience, and deliver that top-notch audio quality needed for success in the podcast world. If you have a podcast you're trying to get off the ground, go to www.thehangarstudios.com and book a session. Thanks to Jennifer, Chad, and the entire team. We've been able to get our podcast off the ground with people we love working with. That's www.thehangerstudios.com. The Hanger Studios. Speak freely. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.